Go ahead and pray for us this morning. Lord, we thank you so much uh, for your character and who you are, how much you love us. Uh, God, thank you for the ability and the freedom to be able to gather here today uh, as people who love you. Uh, Lord, I pray as we open up your word, um, as we're looking at First Kings today, that you would speak to each of us, that you would prepare our hearts for what you have to say. Um, I pray, Lord, if there's anyone in here has not given their life to you, um, that this would be the day that that happens, Lord. I pray that you work in their hearts, uh, pull them to you. We love you. Amen. All right, so as we're getting into it this morning, I want to give a quick recap and give us an idea of why we're even doing this series, right? The thing beneath the thing. Because it is so important to our lifelong walk with Jesus that we apply these principles to our lives. And the pursuit of the abundant life is one that only Jesus makes possible. And it really is, it's a pursuit of the kind of holiness that only Jesus provides in our lives because there is no other life like the with God life. There's just not. Because when we follow Jesus into holiness, it leads us to more spiritual wholeness, right? We're more spiritually whole, which is peace in our lives. More emotional wholeness. Again, that's, that's peace, right? More mental wholeness. Peace. And it's more physical wholeness as well, which anybody want to guess what that is? Peace, right? It's peace. At the end of the day, the with God life, this is where it leads. It doesn't have a water line because honestly, there's nothing to hide when we are walking in the with God life. There is no need at all to try to keep people away from our lives or try to hide behind some fake version of who we want to put on in front of other people. We don't have to force out these parts of our lives that we hate about ourselves when we're truly walking in this life. And I want to make the why of why we're talking about this really clear today before we start unpacking the thing beneath the thing, right? Before we start unpacking that. Because if the why of why we're doing this is not clear, if it's not clear, we're just not going to do it, right? We're going to listen to it. We're going to go home. We're not going to do it. We won't press forward into these things. So i got to be really clear here. The reason why we're doing this whole series, the reason why we're doing it, the reason why we're having these conversations in our groups is this right here, is that in order for you and I to experience the holy, abundant, with God life, Jesus wants, remember, he wants to make that possible for us. We actually have to be willing to get after it, right? We have to be willing to put in the work, the hard work here, to get after it and let God into the thing beneath the things. And the flip side of that is if we don't do this, our lives will stay the exact same as they were before we even knew Christ. They'll stay the exact same. Steve Carter, the one who wrote the book, The Thing Beneath the Thing, he says this about it. If you don't work to become aware of the thing beneath the thing, your life will stay the same. Your potential, the beauty that is begging to be unleashed within you, given by Jesus, right, will be stunted. It'll be stunted. We have to be willing to put in the work and allow God into these things in our life. Now, in Steve's book, he actually begins the chapter. We're going to be talking about hideouts today, right? We had triggers last week, and then the H is hideouts. He actually begins the chapter talking about kids playing hide-and-seek, right? Who loves hide-and-seek as a kid? A few of us, right? I loved hide-and-seek. It's one of my favorite games. And, guys, let me just tell you, I was one of the best in my neighborhood. I was one of the best, okay? So... I lived kind of in the country, whatever, and we had this little block of kids, and we were all wild and would run around with no supervision. It was crazy, and can't do that now, right? Can't do that. But at that time, you could. 
And I remember when I played hide and seek, I had this special spot that no one knew about. And there were these kind of bundle of trees. And I would climb up like a couple limbs and I would just sit there, like squatted down. I was like, nobody's ever going to find me. And nobody did, right? I had the best spot because that spot was mine. I only knew about it and I was safe there. Steve Carter, he actually says this about us playing hide and seek from an early age. He says, even at an early age, we instinctively know there's value in being able to hide, escape, and avoid. He says, sure, we make a game of it, but we also make a lifestyle of it. That principle, even though it's fun and games as a kid, leads into our adulthood because running to hideouts in our lives, it comes so natural. It's ingrained in us. It's ingrained in us. And when the unexpected happens in our life, when the unexpected happens, when fear and overwhelming anxiety set in, the question is, where do we run to? Where do we run to? Because like I said, I had a hiding place, right? Up in those trees, that was my spot. When all that stuff happens in our life, we have a place that we run to. I think all of us do. We all have a place. So as we're talking about hideouts today, they can be defined as this. I want to clear it up real quick. It's the safe place we go to to escape discomfort or a place that's, this is important to note, that we believe will make us feel better about our circumstances. But always, ultimately, they lead us to isolation. All alone. No one else. We believe it's going to make us feel better but it just leads us to isolation. Under the surface of these hideouts is this right here. These hideouts, they represent overwhelming emotion that we're feeling and a lack of trust that God can't handle it. We're saying, God, I don't know if you can handle this. So what we do is we take matters into our own hands. I'm going to run. I'm going to hide. I'm going to be here in isolation by myself because, God, you can't handle it. So today I want us to, as we're, Looking at scripture here, I want us to look at 1 Kings 19. We're going to meet this man named Elijah. Now, Elijah, he is a prophet of God, called by God. This prophet of God who is speaking to him directly actually gets a place where he's in his own hideout. He gets to a place where he finds his own hideout away from everyone in isolation, running away from God and everyone in his life. And like Brad always talks about, when we're talking about people in the Bible, Bible people are people people, right? They are normal just like us. They don't have superpowers. So we're going to be talking about Elijah, and I want us to pick up in 1 Kings 19, verse 9 here. And you can follow along on the screen or open up your Bibles. It says this, he being Elijah entered a cave there and spent the night hiding out in a cave. Suddenly the word of the Lord came to him, and he said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of armies, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, torn down your idols, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are looking for me to take my life. About to have his life taken, right? Then he says, go out and stand on the mountain in the, Lord pres in the Lord's presence. At that moment, the Lord passed by. A great and mighty wind was tearing at the mountains and was shattering cliffs before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the, the fire, there was a voice. Hear this here. We'll come back to this later on. A soft whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Suddenly, a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And we'll pause there and we'll pick up later. 
But Elijah, he is one of God's prophets, right? He is hiding out in this cave alone. This is his hideout, this cave. The Lord comes to him and simply just asks this question, what are you doing here? Now, this is not God saying, hey, why are you in a cave right now? What are you doing in this specific cave? But this is God saying, what are you doing hiding out? Why are you hiding from me? Why are you doing that? And what we're going to come to learn is that Elijah was hiding out in this cave because of an overwhelming sense of fear and a lack of trust that God could handle the situation that he was in. He didn't trust that God could handle it. So Elijah then takes matters into his own hands and he runs to a cave in isolation. Now my question is, how many times in our lives, the situation in our lives where things are scary and we become terrified, overwhelmed with emotion, and we go to our safe place alone, our hideout. How many times do we do that? Because often our first thought is just to run. When things get scary, we run. I'll be honest with you. I know that I do that. I do that. And mine, my hideout, funny enough, and you're going to make fun of me for this, it is often the bathtub, Okay. You can take a second, laugh. I know it's ridiculous. Elijah's was a cave, mine's a bathtub, right? I, I, yeah, sorry to put that picture in your head. Okay, so here's the thing. I know it sounds ridiculous, but my hideout is often the bathtub. Sometimes we have physical places that we hide out in because we're comfortable there. And sometimes it's just a state of mind that everything in our life, we're walking around this state of mind of hiding out in isolation, I know what Brad talked about last week, he talked about triggers. And I have these triggers that when they're set off, sometimes I talk to my wife in ways that are just unkind and unloving, right? I know so many of us can relate with that, but I talk to her in ways that I just shouldn't. We'll have a disagreement. I take it to the next level simply just because of my pride. I refuse to set it aside. I take it to the next level of my pride. And then I honestly sin towards my wife in being unkind and unloving I find myself in a place where I just haven't been the best husband. Often that's because anger just feels easier than setting aside my pride. Anger just feels easier than putting my pride off to the side and dropping it. And after we'll get in these arguments, we'll, we'll walk away from each other, go to separate sides of the house, and then I get in this place where my senses finally come to me. I'm like, why did I just do that? And I feel intense shame, intense shame. This woman that I'm supposed to love and cherish and care for, I just treat her this way. I'm in shame. And my mind goes to this when I'm in these places. Because of the way I just acted, I don't, des- I don't deserve love from my wife. I, ju- I just don't do it. Like, why do I deserve that? And then it goes to the place of, I don't even deserve love from God. I don't deserve it from God. So then I go to my hideout, right? I go take a long bath. And depending on how bad I'm feeling, I might throw a bath bomb in there, right? I'll t- let it fizzle a bit. It makes me feel a little better. It makes me feel a little more comforted. Um, I have a very comfortable hideout, right? But in those moments, I'll sit there for a while, and sometimes it's, it could be a long time, sometimes it's a short time. And then I'll feel God asking me kind of that same question he asked Elijah. What are you doing here? Not God saying, why are you in the bathtub, right? But this is God saying, why, why are you here? Why are you sitting here in all this anxiety and shame and distance from me? What are you doing? Why are you taking matters into your own hands and running away from me and your wife? 
taking matters into my own hands, running away. When we go back to the story of the prophet Elijah, he's in a cave all by himself because it is his safe hideout. We got to ask the question here. When somebody ends up in a hideout, he's in a cave all by himself. The question is, how did he get here in this moment? How did he get here? And for that, we have to go back a few chapters, chapter 16, and we got to give some context here. So I know this is going to be a lot. Please try to follow along with me. There's going to be some context here that's really important. So if we go back to chapter 16, there's this man named Ahab. Now, Ahab becomes the king of Israel. So we've got King Ahab. And 1 Kings 16.30 actually says that King Ahab had, been the most, had done the most evil in the Lord's eyes than any man before him. So we've got this really evil man. And then it goes on to say just a couple verses later, to make matters worse, he marries a woman named Jezebel. So Jezebel is the daughter of the king um, of the Sidonians. She's the daughter of the king of the Sidonians. Now, the Sidonians, they are a people that were huge worshipers of the false god Baal. Most of you guys have heard of Baal before. He is a false god, an idol, and they worship Baal. So Jezebel comes into this marriage worshiping Baal. So Ahab, he marries her, and then he too, this is the king of Israel, becomes a worshiper of the false god Baal. To the point that he actually builds a temple, sets up an altar in that temple just to worship this false god. We have some very evil things going on here. Evil people, very evil things they're doing. Now we go back to the prophet Elijah, right? He's a prophet of God along with several hundred other prophets that God had called. Now most people when we think about a prophet, we think they're just future tellers, right? They just tell futures. They did do that sometimes, right? But ultimately, the job of a prophet was to listen to God speak. They would hear what God said, and then they went and gave that to people. That's all the job was. It was like, God says this to me, now I go give this to everyone else. And that could be something that had already happened, that they're learning a lesson from. It could be something that's currently happening, or something that's going to come in the future if they don't change the way they're living. That's the role of a prophet. Elijah is one of these men. So God, he tells Elijah to go to this king Ahab, this worshiper of Baal, and tell him that there's going to be a severe drought and famine in the land. So there's going to be a drought. There's going to be no rain. We're not going to have any food. And he says, and make sure to tell him it won't end until I say it ends. So that's in chapter 16. Now we're going to skip forward to chapter 18. This drought and famine has been going on for a little over three years now. The Lord comes back to Elijah and he says, go tell Ahab that I am about to bring the rain. This is three and a half years later. He says, go tell him that I'm about to now bring the rain. I'm going to end this drought. So remember, I said that King Ahab, the most evil king up to this point, marries a woman named Jezebel. This lady was just as evil, if not more, than her husband. So Jezebel, she is so angry with what's going on in this drought that she actually schemes a way to kill God's prophets. She kills them. She slaughters all these prophets. Not Elijah, though. All these prophets except Elijah. So at this point, Elijah's like, I guess I'm the sole prophet of God. I guess I'm the only one left because all of them have been killed. So Elijah, what he then does, because God says it's time, right? He finds the guy that works for Ahab, and he says, go to Ahab and tell him that the prophet of of the Lord is coming, talking about himself, right? He says, I'm coming. 
and what we're about to read here is like a huge showdown. That's, about, that's what's about to happen. So Ahab, he gathers 850 false prophets, 450 of the false god Baal, and then 400 of the false god Asherah to go against Elijah by himself. So 850 prophets versus Elijah. We're in the showdown here, and that's where we're going to pick up in verse 20 of chapter 18. So follow along with me here. So Ahab summoned all the Israelites, gets all these people, thousands of people, and gathered the prophets at Mount Carmel. Then Elijah approached all the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people didn't answer him a word. Then Elijah says to the people, I am the only remaining prophet of the Lord. Remember, because Ahab's wife Jezebel killed them off. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us. They are to choose a bull for themselves, cut it into pieces, and place it on wood, but not light the fire. I will prepare the other bull and a place on the wood, but not light the fire. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers with fire, he is God. All the people answered, that's fine. They're like, cool, we'll do that. So the prophets of Baal, they prepare this bull on the altar, and they start calling on Baal. They're like, Baal, please light this on fire. We ask you to bring down uh, the, the fire. It doesn't happen, right, because he's a statue. He's a false god. He does nothing. So Elijah, obviously knowing this, begins to mock them. So if you want to read those verses, it's very funny. But one of the things he says is, hey, maybe Baal's sleeping. Maybe he can't, he can't hear you because he's sleeping. Maybe he'll wake up soon and do it for you. He's just making fun of him. It's great. I love that sense of humor there. It's so funny. And that's when we hop forward to verse 30 because they have been calling at this point on Baal for hours to light up the altar. Verse 30, then Elijah said to all the people, come near me. So the people approached him. Then he prepared the Lord's altar that had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of tribes of the son of Jacob to whom the Lord uh, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel will be your name. And he had built an altar with these stones in the name of the Lord. Then he made a trench around the altar, lar- large enough to hold about four gallons. Next, he arranges the wood, cut up the bull, and placed it on the wood. He said, this is so crazy here, fill four pots, of water, uh, pots with water and pour it on the offering to be burned on the wood. He's, they pour water on the wood, right, to dampen it. Then he says a second time. They do it a second time. Then he says a third time. They do it a third time. So the water ran all around the altar. Then he filled the trench with water. Right? He's just trying to show off what God's going to do even more. He's like, your God couldn't do anything with dry wood. I'm just going to soak this wood with water, and we'll see what God does. Verse 36. At the time for offering the evening sacrifice, the prophet Elijah approached the altar and said, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel... Today, let it be known that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and that at your word I have done all these things. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so these people will know that you, the Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. After this, we see that the Lord's fire fell and consumed the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, and the dust, and it looked up all the water that was around in the trench. And when all these people saw it, it says, this is incredible. They fell face down. This is thousands of people. They fell face down. They said, the Lord, he is God. 
the Lord. He is God. God. God shows off in such a big way here. He shows his power. He shows his faithfulness. Why? So that he could change hearts. So that he could change hearts. So after this, Elijah then rounds up 800, the 850 false prophets, and he has them all killed. He has 850 killed. And after that, they actually begin to hear the sounds of a rainstorm coming from a distance. And God actually brings the rain to end this three-year drought, just like he promised. So God, he shows up so big for Elijah. He shows, up, he, he shows off his all-consuming power here. And everyone is now seeing that these false gods they had been following, they're just statues, they're just man-made idols, and they can do nothing because they have no power. This is God here showing that he is the one true and holy God. He's showing that to all these people. God is flexing his muscles to show who he is to turn people's hearts back to him. That's what God's in the business of, changing hearts. That's what he does here. Elijah, if we read this, I mean, this is scary, right? 850 false prophets against you? That's terrifying. But what we notice here is that Elijah clearly trusts God with everything. What do you need me to do? I'll do it. 850 against one? Let's do it. I trust you. The difference is Elijah has God, right? These guys have a statue. He has God. So we get to this point. This is the chapter right before what we read to start off with. This is right before he goes to the cave. So we got to be like, okay, Elijah, how is it possible that you go to a hideout after you've had this incredible victory and seen God work in such awesome ways? How do you even end up in a hideout? How's that happen? That's where we pick up in, verse, uh, in chapter 19 here, verse 1. It says that Ahab told Jezebel, right, king and queen, everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, may the gods punish me and do so severely if I don't make your life like one of them by this time tomorrow. She's saying, I'm going to kill you. You are going to die tomorrow. It says, then Elijah became afraid and immediately ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba that belonged to Judah, he left his servant there. But he went on a day's journey into the wilderness. He sat down under a broom tree and prayed that he might die. He said, I've had enough, Lord. Take my life, for I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down and slept under the broom tree. Ahab, he tells his wife Jezebel that the prophets of Baal and Asherah have all been killed. So she becomes furious, right? She sends a message, you are going to die, Elijah. I am going to slaughter you just like all these other prophets. You are going to die. We got to note what happened here. Elijah, he, number one, becomes overwhelmed with fear, and then he just runs. He runs. That's how he ends up in his hideout. Think of everything that Elijah has seen God do firsthand. Everything firsthand that God has done. He has seen God Call him as a prophet. Speak to him. Call him. Make him a prophet. He literally hears God's voice, right? Elijah, his name means Yahweh is God. He sees God control the weather for three years and cause a drought and famine. God calls him to blindly go to this place called Sidon, which is a Baal-worshipping area. It would have been very dangerous for him. And God calls him to go find a widow that's going to care for him. And he says, you know what? I'll do it because I trust you. He finds this woman. And what God does is he miraculously multiplies fat flour and oil so they can eat and be sustained. He sees God do this. 
the widow, the one he's staying with, her son gets super sick while he's there and he dies. Elijah prays for this young boy and he's raised back to life right in front of his eyes. He sees all of this stuff. This man, Elijah, this prophet, has seen God to do incredible miracles. And all of that happened right before this crazy showdown that just happened, where God makes his glory and his power known to everyone. Elijah trusts God in every single step of this. But then he finds out that there's a hit on his life, that there's a threat against his life, and everything that God has done goes right out the window. God, I know you're there for me then. I don't think you can do it now. He's overwhelmed with fear and emotion, and he takes off running to his hideout. Runs away from God, runs away from his people in isolation because he's scared. When I think about this, I can relate with that so much. I know I've seen God do incredible things in my life. I went from a a kid who loved sin. I just loved rebelling against authority, right? I loved getting in trouble. It was a fun thing for me. Like, that brought happiness to me. I loved sin. But God changed my heart into someone who loved him. I never thought that would even be possible. I've seen God change the hearts of people that I thought were just too far gone. Like, they are beyond redemption. God, you can't do anything with them. I look at them now, five, ten years later, and it's like, wow. God, look at the miracle you worked in their heart. I've seen people physically healed from sickness, from illness in front of me. My dad, a few years ago, he went to the doctor and they found all these growths in his liver. They found all these growths. And and the doctor was like, okay, we need to be worried about this. I don't know what it is yet. We need to run tests, come back in a couple weeks. But this is something we need to get on quick because we're worried. And guys, if you have gross in your liver, that could be a death sentence, right? That's, That's very scary. So what my parents do, they round up a few dozen people to pray for my dad. They have people lay hands on my dad and pray for him. My dad goes back two weeks later, not a single growth was in his liver. They all disappeared. And the doctor's like, Mike, I'll be honest with you. I have no clue how that happened. I have no medical explanation for how those things disappeared. And my dad does. He looks at him. He goes, yeah, it's Jesus. Jesus. That's what happened. I have seen God work miracles in my life and show off his power and his faithfulness. But yet somehow I still find myself running to my hideouts. When I feel overwhelmed with fear and emotion, I still for some reason take matters into my own hands. Why do I do that? You know, studies have shown that we have a tendency to react to threats in three ways. We fight, we have flight, or we freeze. Let's be honest. When chaos and craziness happens in our life, we often freeze up because we have no clue what to do, so we just take off and run. I could sit there and act like I'm this big, strong man, that when something comes to attack me, that I'm going to fight because I'm strong, like Brad talked about two weeks ago. When chaos happens in my life, I don't respond that, like that. I end up being the scared little boy who freezes up and runs. And you may be able to relate with that. This is what Steve Carter, the author of this book, has to say about this. When we don't have the tools to accomplish a better response, when we lack the map to show us how to move forward in health, we run the risk of having our emotions make the call. For Elijah here, 
this overwhelming fear that he felt forced him into a hideout. For me, why I feel like I'm a bad husband. Anger and pride and shame lead me to my hideout. When I'm in patterns, I'll be honest here, when I'm in patterns and cycles of sin in my life, this thing I just can't get rid of, shame leads me to my hideout because I'm like, why would God love me? I'm so messed up. I'm so sinful. I don't deserve it. So I run and I hide. Sometimes even in my life, it's not even that big. I may get scared. I'm like, I don't know if we're going to make this next rent payment. I don't know if we're going to make it. So fear and then a lack of trust that God's going to provide for me. Remember, he promises to do so. A lack of trust that he's going to provide will lead me to my hideout. In those emotions, when all those things come up, they lead me. My overwhelming emotions, they just call the shot. They lead me. And we're in these hideouts, and we are overwhelmed. What we often do is we lose focus of everything. I want you to hear this here. Our attention gets placed only on us. We don't think about anybody else. We don't think how it affects anyone else. It's like everything's about me right now. Here's what I want us to pay attention to here. When we're in these hideouts, we think, okay, these hideouts, I know I'm feeling shame. I know I'm feeling brokenness. I'm feeling scared. I'm feeling overwhelming anxiety. And we're like, that's just me. It's affecting me. But it's not going to affect anybody else. It doesn't affect anybody else. It won't hurt other people. When we do this, when this is our mindset, I'm telling you, we play exactly into Satan's hands. We play into exactly what he wants. We say, we have this lie in our minds where we say, it won't affect my family. It won't affect the people I love. It won't affect my coworkers. It won't hurt my brothers and sisters here at church. It won't. When we get into this hideout of isolation, that is where Satan attacks us the most. It's where he attacks us the most because we are so vulnerable. We're so vulnerable in these moments. And it's because we run to this place. We're in isolation. We don't let anybody else in. So we have gotten rid of accountability, right? Those people in our lives who love us, that are calling us out on our sin, bringing us to repentance. We're returning from sin, pointing towards Jesus. Those people are now out of our lives. We've lost community. We've lost places where... We can go to, to, to find people that love us and care for us and want to walk through hard things with us. When we do this, we lose perspective. We lose perspective on our own lives. We lose, lose perspective on how God is calling us to live. And we lose our help. We lose the ability to have somebody pull us out and help us. And these are times when it becomes easiest to fall into patterns and cycles of sin. Steve Carter, he says this about it. Thankfully for most of us, our sins and wounds, all of our secret shame-provoking places will never lead to anything drastic. But we're remiss if we presume we aren't negatively affecting our lives by keeping these things buried, by perpetuating patterns in which we are triggered to hide, soothe, and seek instant gratification rather than healing. Listen, when we're in these moments and we are struggling, sin feels really good. It's like, this is going to make me feel better. I know Jesus doesn't want me to do this, but it's going to make me feel better. It's going to be instant gratification, right? I'm hurting so much. This is going to make me feel better for at least a minute. Steve, in his book, he says that these moments, they are like potholes that very quickly become into sinkholes in our lives. 
that these sins, and why I mean sin, it's us saying, God, I know you're asking me to do it this way, but I can do it better. My way is better, so I'm going to do it my way. These sins that we choose to do when we are in our hideouts, they fester, they multiply, and we use them as a means to soothe ourselves, to make ourselves feel better, but ultimately, they affect everyone we love. It leaks into the lives of everyone we love. And we often, we become cold, we become unavailable, we become isolated. Instead of letting sadness and overwhelming fear and pain be shown and more importantly, dealt with, what we do is we let out anger and aggression because it feels stronger. It feels stronger. Instead of letting all the sadness and brokenness be shown and dealt with, we go to anger and aggression. Isolation feels better. My question is, have you, just like me, or just like Elijah, have you allowed your overwhelming emotions to lead you to a hideout, to drive you into what you think is your safe hideout where you're all alone and just crumbling inside? Have you done that? If you've been there, or maybe you're there right now, maybe you're there right now, the question that we have to ask is, how do I get out? How do I get out of this place? I feel like I'm so stuck. How do I get out? This is where we pick back up in chapter 19. We go back to Elijah in the cave, verse 11. Then God says here, go out and stand on the mountain in the Lord's presence. We read this earlier. At that moment, the Lord passed by, and a great and mighty wind was tearing at the mountains and was shattering cliffs before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a soft whisper, a voice, a soft whisper. I said, we get back to this. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle, and he went out. He stood at the entrance of the cave, and suddenly a voice came to him. This is God. What are you doing here, Elijah? In verse 11, we got to pay attention here to what he says. God calls Elijah out of the cave. Elijah's so deep back there, and he's like, Elijah, just, just come to the edge of this cave. Come to the edge. And at this point, Elijah is now seeing God do amazing things. He's seen him do amazing things right now. There are winds so strong that they're ripping cliffs off the side of mountains. That's wild, right? He sees a major earthquake. He sees massive fire consuming everything. But it notes that God is not, com is not coming to him in any of those things. He does the exact opposite. He comes to him in a soft whisper. Elijah, he hears the voice of God, and he comes out of his hiding place. He walks out. In this moment, all of these powerful and miraculous things that are happening don't bring him out. Those are not the things that brings him out of this cave. When we are overwhelmed in our lives, when we are in our hideouts, it feels big and loud and scary. It's terrifying. And what we think is, God, I'm feeling all of this right now, and it is so much. I'm going to need you to match that. I'm going to need you to match exactly what I'm feeling right now. God can do that, right? He doesn't have to. What pulled Elijah out of the cave? It's the soft and loving whisper of God that brings Elijah out. Because God knew this is exactly what he needed when he's feeling everything that he's feeling. 
This is God working in the ordinary small ways, and that's what got Elijah moving, not these big things. When I'm in my hideouts, because guys, let me just tell you, when Brad was like, hey, what sermon do you want to preach in this series? I chose this one because I'll be up front. This is one of my biggest struggles. So many times in my life I run to hideouts because I feel so much shame. and I'm like, nobody, nobody should love me, including God. So I go to hideouts and I spend time there. Sometimes it's quite a while. That's why I wanted to talk about this. And, and let me just be honest with you right here. Um, what I have... Uh, most of you have known through the email or me speaking last week when I said that Jada and I are moving at the end of October to Bowling Green. What I've recently found out is apparently I don't handle change that well. I didn't know that. Apparently I've found that out because I have had overwhelming anxiety, anxiety over the last week. And it, it's tough, right? And I had no clue that that was going to happen. And everything in me wants to do the patterns that I've done throughout my life and hide out. But I was writing this sermon. I'm like, well, I guess I can't do that, right? Because I can't go talk to everyone about hideouts while I'm in one. So I've had to be very honest and, and vulnerable with people in my life that love me this week about this. But when I find myself in hideouts, the same thing that brought Elijah out is the same thing that brings me out. Not audibly hearing the voice of God, um, but let's be honest here. If you feel like, oh, God, I want to hear you. I want to hear you speak. Open up his word. Open up the Bible because that is God's voice. But what pulls me out is feeling his presence in such a deep, and his presence in love in such a deep and intimate way. It affects my heart because the struggle for us and Elijah is that often we wait for God to come to us first, acting as if he's been distant this whole time. Like, God, why have you ran from, why have you run from me? Why are you away from me? We start to blame God for things that maybe he didn't do for us. Or we feel like he didn't act on our behalf. We start to blame him for feeling like he's distant. Let me tell you something here this morning. Jesus is not hard to find. He doesn't make himself hard to find. We do. We're the ones that do that. We run away from him. He never runs from us. Because in reality, when we're in our hideouts, Jesus is sitting there with us the whole time waiting for us to call out to him. So when we find ourselves in hideouts, what should we do? Remember for Elijah here, he's deep in the cave and God calls him out. So if you feel like God's calling you out, follow that. Hear the soft whisper of God and let it affect you. But also, what we can do here is that we can step out and call on God himself. Because we are called to Step out of that cave, step out of our hideout and say, Jesus, I need you. I am struggling, I am hurting, and I need you. And I promise you, he is the God who loves you unconditionally and is all-powerful. And he'll pull you out of that hideout. Seek his face. And it feels, I, guys, trust me, I've been in those moments so many times and it's so hard because I feel like I can't come before God. I am too broken, I'm too messy, I'm too sinful to come before God. But that's what he wants from us. He's asking us, call out my name, seek my face. I will give you comfort. These are the things he promises us with. And those times, I get it. It's so hard because we are overwhelmed with emotion, riddled with anxiety. We have so much fear and we have shame. But he promises to lead us out. 
because he is a God that is so good, so good, so holy, so faithful, and he is a God that keeps his promises. So if he promises to pull you out of your cave, of your bathtub, of your hideout, if he promises to do that, he is going to do it because he is faithful and he is good. We look at Elijah here. After he comes out of this cave, God actually gives him something to do. He doesn't just pull him out and be like, all right, go on your way. He brings him out and he says, I have called you to something. I have a task for you. This task here is for Elijah to go to Damascus and point um, a king over the area Aram. And he says, I want you to appoint a prophet in your place. Then what God says next is, Elijah, you are going to be joining 7,000 men that are just like you. You're going to be joining 7,000 men just like you. And these are the things that God lets Elijah know in this moment. The first thing here, Elijah, you are loved. You are seen and you are known by me. The second thing, this is your next step. Elijah, I have placed a calling on your life. And you can't do it when you're in your hideout. Trust me. Take a leap of faith. Take a step of faith because I will carry you along. This is your next step. Trust me. And the last one here, you're not alone. There are 7,000 people where I'm calling you to that are just like you. That right there is true for every person in here today because this is the, still the same unconditional, loving, and all-powerful God. The God of Elijah is the God that we serve and worship today. And what he wants you to know is that you are loved more than you could ever understand. You are so loved. That if you're his follower, he has placed a calling on your life. He has placed a calling on your life. What he's saying is, this is the next step. Just say yes. Walk into that, a step of faith. And the last thing here, you're not alone. You are not alone. I know when we're in hideouts, we feel so alone because we've isolated ourselves. We feel so alone. Let me just tell you, there are millions of Christians just like you. There are a couple hundred people of this church, partners of this church that are just like you. You are not alone. We are loved, we are called, and we are not alone. And let me just tell you in here this morning, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus and you're sitting there hearing all of this and you're like, wow, someone loves me unconditionally? There is a God that created everything that is so faithful and so loving that he cares for me in the places where I'm hiding out and hurting and broken. He cares for me. And if that blows your mind to hear this morning, I want you to know this. The problem is that we are born into sin and that sin separates us from God because he is holy. He is perfect. It separates us from him. But here's the thing. God loves us so much that he sends his son, Jesus, that God literally comes to the world, this broken, messy, sinful world, didn't have to, as a perfect God, comes to earth, lives 33 years perfectly, a life that not a single person here could ever live. What then happens is that the people that he came to save crucify him on a cross, where he sits on that cross in agony for six hours. Why did he do it? He unconditionally loves you. He wants to know you. 
Three days later, the story doesn't end. Jesus gets out of the grave and is resurrected to forever defeat sin and death in our lives. All he's asking you to do, believe that I am God. Believe everything I've done for you. Trust that this life I've called you to do is better. Have faith that I can forgive everything you've ever done, everything you're going to do. Have faith that I am who I say I am. And we read this here with Elijah. He is a faithful and good God who keeps all of his promises. And what I'm telling you here this morning, Jesus didn't go to that death on a cross for no reason. If you call out to him, if you seek his face, he will change your heart. Just like he did for me when I was a kid. I had no clue. Like, why would God love me that much? I'm a messed up 16-year-old kid. Why would he love me? But he did. He changed everything about my life. He can do that in here for you this morning. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this day that you've given us. Uh, Thank you that we could gather here as followers of you, as disciples, to read your word, uh, to to let it open up and and affect our hearts, Lord. I pray that all of us... uh, would hear something from you this morning, Lord. If for anyone in here that is in a hideout, God, come to them. Call them out of that hideout. God, I pray that you will give them the strength and courage to step out in faith, to step out and trust you, Lord. We love you. We thank you so much for everything you do for us. Amen. Amen. We stand and sing with us.